We Americans have a stubborn travel streak. And when the economy is jittery or the dollar's down, we need to travel a little smarter to turn our dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. This is the first edition of our new public radio show, Travel with Rick Steves. We'll take you all over the world to some of my favorite backdoor destinations in Europe, as well as to distant and more exotic corners of our planet that few of us have yet to experience. Today, we'll meet a woman who enjoys trekking in the Himalayas so much, she's written a guidebook on travel to Nepal. And we'll also find out how you can bicycle the back roads anywhere in the world for slower-paced adventures you'll treasure forever. That, plus your calls, promises a lively hour ahead of us as we begin our adventures together. Right now, you and I are travel partners. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Travel can be so many different things today, whether you're planning the vacation of a lifetime or just need a few days to get away from the familiar routine. We're here to help with this new weekly public radio program we're calling Travel with Rick Steves. Each week at this time, we'll have interviews with people I'd like you to meet. They'll share their stories and ideas on places they love and how they've learned to travel smart so that you can too. We'll also take your calls and emails. Send us your questions and comments to radio at ricksteves.com or give us a call at 877-333-RICK. And you can join in the discussion boards at our website on a number of topics. It's all at ricksteves.com. We're going to start off on this new radio series with the simple pleasures of travel on foot and by bicycle. A little later in this hour, we'll hear the latest on trekking through the Himalayas with Carrie Moran, who writes a guidebook on Nepal. And adventure cyclist Willie Weir believes that the bicycle is the modern world's magic carpet. After you hear why he travels around the country and around the world on two wheels, you just might decide to try it yourself for your next adventure. But first, let's take some of your calls. Let's talk about your travel plans at one 333 rick I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. We've got lots of callers on the line and lots of travel experience to share. we got Mark in Seattle. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? Hi, Rick. I have a question about changing money overseas. Yeah. Uh, normally, I try to avoid changing money in airports because exchange rates are always pretty bad. Right. Does that also apply to ATMs? Is there any advantage to doing an ATM in town rather than the airport? You know, that's the beautiful thing about ATMs is they are the same everywhere. And I've I've always been a little skeptical about that and say, well, why aren't they ripping me off here at midnight at the airport or right. something like this? But that's a leftover sort of skepticism from the old days when they had exchange desks. And at the exchange desk, you'd be absolutely right. I mean, in fact, the exchange desks would have competitive rates until the banks closed, and then they would kick into their late-night rates, which would be much more miserable, mm-hmm. and you'd lose piles. But now, I always change. I never leave home with cash, unless I have euros left over from a previous trip or something. And I just, as soon as I get my bags, it's a fun routine. I go to the ATM, pop my card in, get my cash, and I'm on my way. And I just feel so good because it's the it was so effortless, and it's at this utopian bank-to-bank rate. Uh, so I don't think there's any downside to it as, as far as I can tell, Mark. So no, no difference between airport or town? 
No difference at all. It's um, as long as you've got a, a legitimate bank that's uh, operating that machine. It's the same equation. And um, if you want, uh, like, 200 people's experience with ATM uh, machines and all the pitfalls, these are people who are much more anal about figuring out all the possible uh, problems and so on than me. Because my approach to it has been for five years just, wow, this is too good to be true, and I'm over there having a blast with my card, and until I hear, hear otherwise, I'm just going to assume it's just perfect. Um, go to our website at ricksteves.com. In the graffiti wall, there's a, a thriving conversation going on with people who are really a, aficionados of all the ins and outs of ATMs, and you can get, get, get some more... Um, you know, sophisticated analysis, but I'm just sort of the uh, innocent babe over there with my credit card, and it seems to work perfect. That sounds good. Uh, but with the dollar where it's at, you know, you're going to want to um, change smartly, so that's just one more reason why you would want to use ATMs. I think I've changed my last traveler's check. I'm never going to sign another traveler's check in all my life. Well, you've talked me into that, that's for sure. Where are you going, Mark? Uh, over to Germany and then Italy. Germany and Italy, all right. Well, it's going to be very crowded in Italy. Uh, and uh, I was just in Germany surprised how reasonable Germany is compared to a lot of other places, uh, right. especially when it comes to food. Are people still traveling with a weak dollar? You know, um, people are traveling with or without the weak dollar because there's much more to tourism than just Americans. And this is one thing that Europe learned after 9-11 is they cannot count on the American market. Yeah. A lot of businesses over there were just like American-focused, but... They realized, uh, you know, one terrible event and, and we're out of there for a while, whether it's a 9-11 type thing or whether it's a foot and mouth or mad cow disease or any of these kind of things. Americans react really um, um, extremely to headlines and they don't go somewhere. Right. Uh, you know, and it's uh, uh, Europeans keep traveling. Japanese are lots of Japanese traveling. I, I just find Europe is crowded with tourists in general, regardless of where our dollar is. And I think we've got to get used to the fact that our dollar is not going to get as much as we'd like it to get. Uh, just recently, everybody's talking about the euro becoming the uh, currency of exchange for oil and so on. And, and um, you know, for years, I remember when I was in countries in the fringe of Europe where they had basket case economies, uh, the, when I, before I bought something in a flea market or even at a hotel renting a room, they would get out the newspaper and see what their currency was against the dollar because their prices were in dollars. Mm -hmm. And then they would change it to their currency and charge me, but it was all based on dollars. Now nothing's based on dollars. It's all based on euros. It's not getting any better. Nope. So, you know, we still travel and we still have a blast, but we have to travel smartly. And that just means, um, you know, enjoy um, a crepe on the steps of the church every third dinner instead of uh, fine restaurant dinners every night and stay in a two-star hotel instead of a three-star hotel and hop the shuttle in from the airport. Uh, you know, normal people who have to watch their dollars are, or their euros are traveling, whether they're Americans or Norwegians or Portuguese people. They just need to travel smartly. Right. Okay, good luck on your trip. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Go on. We have Judith on the line from Utah. Related conversation, I think. You're worrying about your dollars, too? That's true. I, I've been wondering about just how expensive it is to travel in Europe, like Ireland, Wales, Scotland, Denmark, Norway, Poland. Uh, but I was wondering if I could afford it. Now, can it be reasonably cheap eating out of grocery stores and using a rail pass? And can I find a room for one person at $30 a night or less? Well, and I need to mention I'm 62, so I don't have youth discounts to rely on. And uh, I have to travel alone because my husband doesn't care to travel. And I'm used to no-star hotels, so I can go really cheap if I have to. No-star hotels. Yeah, if, they're, good, if they exist. Yeah, good for you. I love, I mean, I don't love them, but I'm fascinated by no-star hotels. <laughs> and when I, one thing I try to do in my guidebook research is find those no-star hotels. Um, they're, they're, they're funky. They're, if, if they're well-chosen, they can be, you know, clean and safe. Uh, but they're certainly going to be Spartan, right? Mm -hmm. These are kind of like the, I always say, for a lot of people, you know, there are lousy little dumpy hotels that cost essentially the same as a youth hostel. 
And if you want more privacy, you might want to opt for those simple little no-star hotels. Um, Also remember, you're 62, but hey, um, it's never too late to have a happy childhood, right? That's Mm -hmm. what they say, or it's, uh, what else do they say? Age only matters if you're a cheese. When you're traveling in Europe, you can go to the hostels. They've taken youth out of the word. There's 2,000 hostels in Europe, and they don't even call them youth hostels anymore. As a matter of fact, if you're over 55, you get a discount on the membership card. So if you're alive, you are young enough to youth hostel. That's just one option. Um, you know, um, the I'm sending my son over the day after he graduates, and his budget is $50 a day plus his year rail pass. And um, it's sort of the trip exactly one generation after my trip when I graduated, you know, and my budget was like $5 a day back then. $50 a day is really, really tight. But he'll be able to do it because he's got his transportation covered with the rail pass. He's got his... Um, youth hostel card, or he'll be staying in um, accommodations that rent beds rather than rooms. You see, for people of all ages, there are places, YMCAs, mountain huts, hostels, uh, uh, you know, uh, dormitories, uh, convents, and so on, that rent beds instead of rooms. And that's, see, you're a single traveler, Judith, and uh, you really get penalized if you go to hotels because you're paying 80% of the price of a double room to have a single room. Most uh, most hotels don't give you a break if you're a single traveler. I see. Yeah, so you want to watch that. Uh, you mentioned Ireland and the U.K. Ireland used to be cheaper than the U.K. Now Ireland is more expensive than than Britain, and uh, it's because it's just got this booming economy. That for the first time in history, Ireland has a higher per capita income than England, and they're importing labor instead of exporting it. And I've noticed from my own expenses and for the expenses of our tours in Ireland that it is very pricey, and it just means you've got to go the B&B route, and you've got to have picnic lunches and eat pub grub, and, and uh, that's actually a, a blessing in disguise because you're connecting with more people that way. Judith, you mentioned going to Eastern Europe. When you go to Eastern Europe, you will find hotels are as expensive in the East as they are in the West. But after that, admissions and eating is much, much cheaper. Oh, okay. Good luck on your trip. Thank you very much. Thanks for your call. You're welcome. Anne in Dacula, Georgia, uh, emailed us. And uh, she says, is there water transportation from Paris to Edinburgh? Um, you know what she's prob there's there wouldn't be water transportation from Paris to Edinburgh, but if she's thinking about the English Channel crossing, most people now take the train. It's ten departures a day, two and a half hours from Eiffel Tower to Big Ben, seventeen minutes under the English Channel uh, in the tunnel, uh, and that's the expedient, efficient way. I mean, seventeen minutes under the English Channel, looking out the window for fish, and uh, there still is the romantic option of taking the ferries, and the ferries just didn't roll over and die. They've come up with some quite competitive. Uh, rates and so on. And actually, the cheapest way to get from London to Paris is by a bus that goes um, onto a boat and across. And you'll learn about that when you're over there or on the web or from your guidebooks. If you're getting from Paris to Edinburgh, you really want to, I think you want to go from Paris to London and then get on the train that zips up to Edinburgh. Uh, Britain has the most expensive per mile train system in Europe. Uh, and in some ways, I think you could say it's it's a good value because it's so fast and, and uh, it just you get up to Edinburgh and nothing flat. If you're on a tight budget, you can travel much cheaper in Britain by bus than by train. So thanks for your email, Anne in Georgia. We have some fun ways we'd like to encourage your participation in Travel with Rick Steves. When you go to our website at ricksteves.com, the radio section has a place you can submit one of three things we're looking for from our listeners. A hometown brag, an audio postcard, and traveler's haiku. Write up a paragraph or two about where you live. Record a minute or two of natural sound that makes an intriguing audio postcard. 
or write us a haiku and send your submissions to radio at ricksteves.com. If what you send makes it on our show, we'll send you a gift certificate worth $20 to use in the travel store at ricksteves.com. So again, we're looking for your submissions. For all the details, see ricksteves.com. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. We're looking forward to hearing from you. Coming up, meet a Seattle man who'd rather see the world from a bicycle than from a limousine, and why he's richer for it. Willie Weir and Adventure Cycling, up next, as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Io sono Lisa Anderson e abito in Nord Italia, in Piemonte, e io viaggio con Rick Steves. That's Italian for my name is Lisa Anderson, and I live in northern Italy in the region of Piemonte, Piedmont, and I travel with Rick Steves. Io sono Lisa Anderson, di Nord Italia, io abito in Piemonte, e io viaggio con Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves, and we are traveling with Rick Steves, and I've got with me today, I think, one of the most inspirational bike travelers I've ever met, Willie Weir, the author of Spoke Songs, and a guy who has biked across this planet many times, and we're going to learn about practical biking around the world. Thanks for joining us, Willie. My pleasure, Rick. Yeah, where have you been biking lately? You know, mostly it's been around Seattle. Uh, I've been doing a lot of commuting. Uh, didn't do a bike trip this last year. 
uh, my wife Kat and I are planning to head off to Southeast Asia, uh, looking at uh, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, and Thailand. Probably not all of those countries. That's what we're kind of uh, looking at right now. And uh, I find the one thing that I often make the mistake but have to relearn the lesson every time is that's trying not to see too much. As soon as you try to do that on a bicycle, you've just destroyed any kind of advantage a bicycle gives you. And it, it really does. So we'll so probably end up in Laos and okay. Vietnam or just in one country. Uh, we'll, we'll find out uh, once the time gets closer. And I mean, I lay in bed at night thinking about where I'm going to travel next. You lay in bed at night probably think about where you're going to travel on your bike next. Is that right? Do you always yeah. just go well, You know, bike? that's the only way I've ever traveled. I mean, I bicycled across the U.S. when I was 19, right. and that was just going to be the one trip. I mean, I, I wasn't an avid traveler. I, like so many people in in my generation or that you live in the United States, nobody in my high school was talking about travel. You nobody biked was across talking. the USA when you were 19. Yeah. yeah How old we, are you now? I am 43. Okay. So, so you've done a lot a of biking. Are you still able to bike like you always have been? In the, if people are in their 40s? And... Yeah, I, I can. I, I have. On, what, what, what happens as you age as an adventure biker? You know, as far as cycling is concerned, not a whole lot. You know what the difference is? It's just harder to sleep in a tent. I mean, it really, I don't know the ground. It really is. I mean, really? so you, you know, your... those th- therm arrests or, or those kind of mattress okay. pads have really been a godsend as, so in, as in far as older. Years, you've been biking for 25 years and, and the, the big change is the mattresses are more comfortable or they need to be more yeah, comfortable. Yeah, you know, because, you know, bicycle seats are still uncomfortable. It doesn't matter what you, you put on there. Uh, it, it has more to do with just the number of hours you spend in the saddle. Hmm. I mean, you mean, it, hasn't it essentially changed in 25 years, the, the technology of biking? You bike, you know, what, 3,000 miles across the country? Well, things have changed. And what has changed as far as bicycles are concerned are that when I bicycled across the U.S. in 1981, I had 17 flats mm-hmm. and I had to repack my bearings in my bicycle three separate times. Well, thanks to the mountain bike industry and uh, an entire group of, you know, I mean, thousands of people who now take these bicycles and put them through the test every single day. Bicycle manufacturers and bikes have just gotten so much better to the point now where I carry a lot less spare parts. You can bike lighter. Your bike's more efficient? Oh, definitely. Well, my bike is heavier than it used to be. But part of that is I used to travel on a touring bike and I really use a mountain bike now. And part of that is is that I find – a mountain bike allows me to go wherever I want to go. And I find more often than not, I mean, people talk about getting off the beaten path, getting off, well, off the beaten path in most countries now. And as more countries around the world, we're seeing more automobiles, more traffic. Uh, sometimes the pavement isn't the best way to go. And okay, but so, if you're biking across Nebraska, you uh-huh. want a road bike, don't you? Not a mountain well, bike? Well, sure you do. It's but a huge disadvantage, I would think, to have a mountain bike. Yeah, well, depending on how you can now ride a mountain bike frame but still put some – like if I was going to still ride a mountain bike and I was going to be in the U.S., I would be riding a mountain bike with skinnier tires mm-hmm. that you could still put 100 pounds of pressure in. I mean when mountain bikes first came out, 30 pounds of pressure was a lot. And so – So that's a strategy. When you set off on a trip, you think what kind of roads will I encounter? What kind of tires should I use? How much air should I put in? You know, yes and no. And I guess part of it is that I've learned as I've gotten older is that really one of the things I love about a bicycle is that it slows me down. 
And so for me to strategize about hmm. how, how much, you know, how am I going to go faster, where really what I enjoy about the bicycle is that it makes me go slower. Isn't that a fundamental difference between you and me? I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I think, wow, Paris to London in two and a half hours on the English Channel Tunnel Train. I mean, I'm just so excited about that. And you're thinking, hey, I'm traveling. I guess what I've discovered is that a bicycle puts you out there and you spend so much time – and I always talk about uh, Americans especially, but travelers very often become very A to B oriented, very mm-hmm. destination oriented. Right. I am here and I'm going to there. And if you're on a bullet train or a plane or mm-hmm. – I mean, of course. Well, if you're on a bicycle, it's very dangerous to get into that mode. Very often, if you're traveling, you end up around other travelers. Most of those people are going by buses, by trains or whatever. But on a bicycle, just as an example, when I was in India, I met some people and I was, I was in Jaipur and I was headed for Jaisalmer. Well, for the people that I was hanging out at this local place uh, having lassies, uh, yogurt drink lassies there, uh, they were going to be on a bus at 4 o'clock and the next morning they were going to be in Jaisalmer. Well, it was going to be four and a half days for me to get to Jaisalmer. So if my focus was Jaisalmer and I just – you know, I would spend four and a half miserable days just thinking about where I was going to get. Well, mm. the magic was in between. And so it is a mindset. Where, oh, sure it is. Mm-hmm. But at least for me – what that bicycle does is that it lets you see the nooks and crannies of mm. those in-between destinations that most people don't even take, you know, t- take like a look option. at. They don't even consider. Exactly. You know, the only time that I can think of, well, that th- comes to my mind when I was in that mindset because I'm the car train mm-hmm. traveler, you know. I was hitchhiking in Ireland once and I was so into just being in Ireland that I was on a desolate road and I realized I'm going to hitch whichever direction this rare car is coming. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to get into that car, and they're going to say, where are you going? And I'm say, Ireland. I'm here. Where are you right. going? I'm with right. you. I'm just exactly. living in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the most marvelous travel experiences I've had. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the mindset a biker will have. Well, it's a mindset a biker has, but not all, often. I mean, I think one of the – I met a, a father and son. I had just finished uh, two and a half months. Now, the difference, too, is that very often I've traveled. I've traveled from three to five months. So, of course, if I was going on a bicycle journey for a weekend, deciding to just hang out someplace for a night, you know, there's a very difference depending on how much you're taking. I had spent two and a half months in the South Island, New Zealand, and had an amazing – oh, my. I mean, New Zealand is is an outdoor person's Disneyland. And I – and there's the ferry from the South Island, North Island, and mm-hmm. there was a father-son that I met as they were coming off the ferry. And they had their bikes, hadn't seen a lot of bicycle travelers. And I said, God, isn't New Zealand great? And father looked at me and said, New Zealand sucks. And, you know, for one – I expect maybe his son might say that. But I, and, and I thought, wow, could the North Island be that much more horrible <laughs> than this place I'd come from? And I started asking him questions. So what, what is the deal here? And – The more I asked, the more I found out that this was their first bicycle trip together. Father, son, son was about 13 years old. Well, they had gotten their maps out and originally they were going to do this little – they had uh, three weeks, total of three weeks they could spend in New Zealand. And what happened is on the plane flight, it's a long plane flight over, they had looked at their map enough Mm. that they ended up jettisoning their original plan, which was going to be up in the north. And they decided they could actually cycle from the tip of the north – to the tip of the south in three weeks. And I looked at this man and I, I looked at his route and I said, sir, where are you from? And he said, well, you know, we're from, we're from California. I said, would you bike I-5? And he said, 
No, nobody in their right mind would bike high five. And I said, well, you just finished biking the Interstate 5 of the North Island of New Zealand. Of course it sucked. It was horrible. <laughs> but that sense of trying to bite up, you know, bite off too much. And, you know, if he'd been in a car and they decided to do whatever or been another – but on a bicycle, what he tried to do is see way too much. And when you do, you end up on the main roads. And as soon as you are, you might as well change change your mode of travel or change your outlook on how you're going to travel. But doesn't that kind of go against the grain of what a guidebook tells you to do? A, gu- a guidebook focuses you on a, on a destination that you can actually report on. Mm-hmm. And I suppose you can get too hung up on covering the information that the guidebook says is great. Yeah. Now, that might work if I'm going on a train from Florence to Rome. Mm-hmm. But if I'm biking across the South Island of New Zealand, really enjoying it, that Disneyland uh, for mm-hmm. a nature lover, how is, that, how is that a problem? Can a guidebook actually be a negative? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think... I think guidebooks can be a horrible negative depending on how people use them and especially if they're used uh, as a crutch, if they're used as a Bible. Go ahead. Talk, um, talk, talk. Oh, sure. My whole livelihood oh, is I know. guidebooks. But oh, exactly. <laughs> I, exactly. No, I, and I, and I, I really think that because – and I always tell people that I still get guidebooks. I just finished getting a guidebook and a couple of looking at a couple of guidebooks for Cambodia, for Laos, for these for the different regions I'm going. The difference is how often you have that guidebook in front of you. And whether it is a guidebook or your altar that you're mm. worshiping in. And if you spent all your time, and I tell people, if if you spend a hundred percent of your time with your guidebook, you can be guaranteed to have someone else's adventure. Mm-hmm. Use of course we need information. We need the ability, and 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 it's such a you know with the internet and the ability to get all this information, it really has had the opportunity to make travel more rich. But just like anything, it can be abused. Um, but and, with the guidebook, you've got information on Chiang Mai, and you've right. got information on Bangkok mm-hmm. biking. Right. Those are just like the, the 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 start and the finish point, and the essence of your trip is between, which really a guidebook yeah. can't cover. But you know what? They're starting to come out with guidebooks for bicyclers, and they'll take that route really? and tell you. And what would they tell you? Is it well, going to be cultural tell you scavenger the, hunt kind oh, of things? Oh, sure. They, but they tell you the places to go along the way. But of course, if you take two places, I mean, if you take the United States, I mean, there are guidebooks. Um, you know, I write for the Adventure Cyclist Association, which was originally known as Bike Centennial. Well, they had a route. That Mm -hmm. went across the United States. Mm -hmm. I mean, it isn't a separated bike path. They, in 1976, they decided, okay, we're going to take a route, take it across the U.S. And that year, I think four to six thousand people bicycled across the U.S. I mean, before then, the number of people that had gone across the United States, you know, handful, Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe a couple hundred. Now, hundreds of thousands. But the difference being is that that was the route. Well, all of a sudden people got that route and they, you know, well, that's the way you have to go. Well, this was the, the established, this was the established norm, huh? bike centennial route across the U.S. started in Seaside, Oregon, went wow. across, ended up in Washington, D.C. All D. having C. the same anecdotes and exactly. stories. Exactly. But, and the oh, difference being, wow. my buddy Thomas, we bicycled in 1981. We followed that route for up until we got to about Montana and into Wyoming and then we separated. And the difference we found was that, of course, when we were on that route, everybody had seen by this point, 100,000 cyclists come through their town. Well, we went up like 10 kilometers. Now, you get to Wisconsin, Minnesota, mm-hmm. those states there. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, if you look at a map, you know, I, I, I think they've renumbered the, the roads now. But I loved Wisconsin because it always had like County Road Triple Z and, you know, County Road Double J. And, you know, let's, and we'd head up like 5 kilometers, 10 kilometers and go along that road and come in and people say, 
what are you doing? What are you, the first cyclist that had come? Wait, five kilometers away from the road that everybody was going to be on. Are there and parallel I, roads? So oh, it's, parallel. It's as you know, practical as ex- can be. Exactly. It's just you get five kilometers north on the next road up. Right. And you have a different reception. Yeah. Because I think that's one um, um, essential beauty of biking is you meet people and they have a certain respect for you because you're taking it slow. You're, on, you're human powering across mm-hmm. their land. I, I met a man in Quebec. Well, I ended up in Montreal, and it was St. Jean-Baptiste Day, it, the party day of Montreal. And I was cycling across Canada. This is the one place where I had a place to stay. His name was Gaetan. He was a friend of a friend. I showed up at his place, and he said, Willie, um, you know, I have to go to my, my mother-in-law's place uh, tonight. Believe me, you don't want to come with me at all. So here, you have the apartment. Feel free. Now, this is an opportunity for me to leave my bicycle behind and just go wander the city. As I'd come through Montreal, I had literally been run off the road at least 10 times for people pulling me off to t- ask me if I had a place to stay. Hmm. I mean, I, I mean, it's like, um, you're number five. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> so but there's a friendly way to uh, pull oh, you off. Fr- oh, yeah. They were kind of moving. You know, the up. first time I was just like, oh, my God. What's going on? So, I mean, this, I had never been in such a friendly city. So I left the apartment. I had a chance to walk through and there were all these Where was this? parties going on in Montreal. In Montreal. And, yeah. and so I'm wandering through. I come through the first neighborhood and I walk in. Watched people. They kind of look the other way. This one man literally turned his back on me. And I walked through the next neighborhood, same kind of reception. I thought, what happened? But wait a second. I walked back to Gaetan's apartment and I got my bicycle, all my panniers, whatever. And I just walked it back the same route I took. I came into that neighborhood and the same people looked at One person smiled at this guy who turned his back to me. All of a sudden, smiling, hey, how are you? Nice to mm. Come sit down, sit down. Would you like a glass of wine? Okay. And I said, before, you looked at me. You, know, you turned your back at me. What's the difference? And he said, ah, I will tell you this. He said, when you were here before, you were a tourist. And I see now by your bicycle that you're a traveler. And you have earned this glass of wine. And that was the difference. Perfect. A lot of people might be concerned about how Americans will be uh, perceived abroad. And you've traveled mm-hmm. in every corner of this planet, I think, on your bike. Perhaps you could say these days the bike has an extra advantage in that it really endears you to local people. It cut, it takes you apart. It doesn't make you not an American, but it makes mm-hmm. you a biker, somebody who really is respected as a biker on the road, a traveler instead yeah. of a tourist. If you're worried about being seen as an American, if you're on a bicycle, most people are just going to assume that you're a German. Like, All over the world? We just traveled in Turkey, and I can't tell you how many older Turkish men, because so many Turks go to Germany to get yeah. work, would come running at us, yelling to us in German, you know, just assuming there were two people huh. with, you know, panniers. We had how were Germans received around the world? Um, you know, some areas in Turkey, I found people say, you know— they didn't like Germans, but I think part of it was that their experience in Germany had not been very no. good as far as the whole situation there. But overall, we, you talk about the ugly American. But you know what? They're ugly Italians and ugly Spaniards. And they're basically just ugly travelers. Every country has them. And I think there's something to be how big your country is too. You're more The big countries, Russia, Japan, America, mm-hmm. Germany, they're more likely to have these ethnocentric, pushy travelers who think their way is the norm. That's mm-hmm. been my experience. Small countries – you don't find the ugly well, And I think so. in those countries, you have grown up having people adapt to you. Right. Your language, your culture, your business. I mean, if, if you're from Iceland or if you're from, you know, Ecuador, I mean, you don't travel to Japan and expect the Japanese to be mm-hmm. able to speak your language. And, and, of course, the more power your country has, the more likely people are supposed to bend to what your culture and language and whatever has them do. Now, it seems like part of your work is inspiring people to explore and experience the world by bicycle. How do you deal with people who are just flat out worried? There's lots of things to be afraid about. Yeah. 
The first thing I tell people to do is stop watching Fox News or any news if they can, at least that's on television. Um, it is um, – I, I call it your nightly dose of fear. You mean basically because if it bleeds, it leads? Well, sure. How many reports have we seen that crime statistics keep going down year after year but the amount of time that's given to them is – so people – if you ask the you know typical American, they feel less safe than they used to be. Well, if crime stats have gone down – the only thing that points to is the fact that they're told to be afraid. And if you're told to be afraid by enough people, often enough, you are. And I always tell people, you know, if you want to live your life in fear, spend an hour or two in front of the television set and make sure you're, you know, read the newspaper from cover to cover every single day. And if you want to think this world's a pretty amazing place, go travel around it or get on a bicycle and do it. Willie Weir. He's a columnist for Adventure Cyclist magazine, uh, author of Spoke Songs. I got to tell you, I, I get a lot of people asking me to uh, uh, endorse their book or something like that. I, I, and I generally don't like to do it because I don't have time to get into the book and so on. But I read Willie's book and I wrote this about it. Reading Willie Weir is like bouncing along on the back of his bike, hanging tight to this poet guide who knows just which potholes offer the most travel thrills. And he hits them expertly. Willie Weir, thanks so much for traveling with us today. My pleasure, Rick. Eight seven seven three 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 Rick. This is travel with Rick Steves. Nepal, with eight of the world's ten highest peaks, is a wonderland for hikers. How in shape do you have to be? What about the leeches? Do you need a sherpa? Should you get a sherpa? What about the villages? What about your health? What about altitude? We'll talk the ins and outs of trekking in Nepal. Coming right up on travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, I want to take you climbing, mountain climbing, trekking to a little country buried high in the Himalayas. I want to meet a person who's uh, uh, become an expert at Nepal, and uh, she wrote this. 
the true Nepal reveals itself only to those who walk. With the Himalayas a powerful lure, trekkers live amid mountains for weeks at a time, achieving an intimacy with the landscape that connects them to the people they meet and the world beyond. This is where you'll learn that where matters least of all, and the cliché is true. The journey is more important than the destination. Carrie Moran has spent uh, 13 years living in Nepal. She's written The Moon Handbook to Nepal, and Carrie Moran joins us now uh, for a little insight into a country that she knows and, and loves well. Carrie, thanks for joining us. Hi, Rick. It's nice to be with you. Wow, trekking in Nepal. My favorite thing. It's, not just, it's more than a hike. I mean, it's a connection with the culture as well as the natural wonders, isn't it? It is, and it's a way of life in itself, I have to say. Just walking through mountain landscape day after day after day kind of changes your whole view of the world. <laughs> Let's talk just a little bit about the practicalities, and then we'll talk to some of our uh, listeners. But uh, we've got eight of the world's ten tallest peaks in this little country. That's right. And in your book, I noticed, I think all 15 of the world's tallest peaks are in the Himalayas. So this is really the place. But we're not talking climbing these mountains necessarily. We're talking hiking trails that are roads really connecting communities in a lot of ways in parts uh, in land where there there really is no uh, vehicle traffic. Is That's that right? right. The trails are roads in the sense that they provide the, the transportation links between places and goods roll down these roads on the backs of porters or the backs of yaks or the backs of pack animals, but there are no motor vehicles. That's the definition of trekking, is you're going into an area where there are no motor vehicles. Ah, is that, is that really it? I didn't realize that. And well, that's, that's one of the definitions. You know, because I've flown <laughs> and over... that's one of the things Nepal has to offer that's quite amazing. I've flown over regions that are densely populated on this planet, but not very developed from an, uh, you know, a pavement point of view. And uh, there's rush hour, but everybody's just, it's rush hour, and every, <laughs> everybody's walking in one direction on the trail. That's true. Do you encounter that when you're trekking? Do you get a sense of the commerce and, and the communities? Oh, definitely. Um, for instance, if there's going to be a bazaar in a certain town, often towns, especially in eastern Nepal, have something they call hot bazaars, weekly bazaars, where people come to sell goods, maybe on Friday afternoon or Sunday morning or whatever. And the day before it, you'll see uh, dozens of porters walking towards these towns with goods on their back to sell at these places. So if you plan to trek uh, smartly, you could be in the right place at the right time and be aware of what's going on in the way of markets and, and yes, uh, commerce festivals, um, and festivals. Religious rituals, yeah. You, do you encounter a lot of uh, religious festivals as you hike? You can time your visit accordingly. Uh, I mean, there are big festivals that are uh, known in certain regions, and they are well worth seeking out, I think, because... Um, just from the point of view of, of color and photography there, it can be incredible. Uh, and sometimes you just run into an impromptu wedding or, um, you know, some other kind of celebration. I ran into an impromptu wedding, and I had the best camera, so they invited me to be the, the wedding photographer. And there you go. It, and I was uh, right in the front row, and it was a great experience. And uh, you need to be able to uh, sort of flex with the, uh, the events as you uh, hike mm -hmm. and explore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's talk. Uh, I'm talking with Kerry Moran, by the way, who's the author of The Moon Handbook to Nepal. I would imagine that that just like travel anywhere, if you if you energetically plan your trek without getting everything nailed down, but just know what your options are and so on, you would consider um, lacing in festivals, consider the weather, the culture that you're going to be experiencing, as well as your physical limits and so on. Mm -hmm. Give us some tips on putting together a smart trek in Nepal. Okay, a smart trek in general, regardless of what area you're going in. Um, I would think about what really interested me and drew me in terms of culture. Do I want to see Hindu lowland culture? Do I want to walk through rice fields and rice paddies? Or am I more interested in high-altitude yak country with uh, Sherpas and Buddhist culture? Or do I want to put together a smorgasbord that taps into all of these? 
because mm-hmm. that's possible also. I would pack smartly in terms of little things to tuck into my pack to either make my life better on the trail or to share with people along the way. For instance, it's really nice to bring um, some either photographs or postcards of your hometown, your home area. Some of my show best people. experience have been to share that way, bring a Ziploc baggie full of show-and-tell items. Yes, exactly, and the most mundane things, a picture of your car in the garage. Everybody's going <laughs> to gather around. Yeah. Amazing for people. Yeah. <laughs> or uh, your family, your friends, uh, your supermarket, whatever, your backyard, all these things. People can relate to this around the world, and you don't even need a whole bunch of language to cross those barriers. You just start showing pictures, and people go, oh, wow. So that's a nice thing to bring. Another thing I like to tell people to bring is if you play a harmonica or a flute or any kind of little musical instrument, you can just sit down anywhere and start to fool around with that, and it brings people up to see what's happening. I guess one thing that would be a, a sort of a major prerequisite for enjoying the Indian subcontinent is to forget about time means money. <laughs> you know, in America, think about it. We're trained to think of time as money. We spend it, even the way we, we the it's terminology right, we around it. it, we waste yes. it, we invest it, <laughs> we bank it, we bank some time. Uh, in, in India and in Nepal and, and Sri Lanka, Kashmir, boy, time is not money. And if you've got a harmonica, you sit down and start to uh, fiddle with that. You'll have some friends sitting around that would love to just uh, hang out with you. That's right. And I think time is life time, there. Time I is think, life. And I think there it gets go. much closer to the truth. Let's talk just some very practicalities here. I'm talking with Carrie Moran, the author of The Moon Handbook to Nepal. Uh, what about how in shape do you have to be? Do you have to be a, a strong hiker? Uh, what, what's, uh, what's the considerations there? I think, I mean, certainly you need to be healthy and fit, and you need to have some either stamina or the willingness to get that stamina over the course of time. But you don't need to be an athlete or a jock or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always found that I got in shape when I was on the trail. And you brought, just you'd want to have very good gear that's well broken in. It's nice to have boots that are comfortable. That's the most important thing, and a comfortable pack if you're carrying a pack. What about money? How much does it cost? You have to. Let's just talk in big terms. You got to fly there, and then what would your daily uh, budget be after that? Well, you might be flying into the trailhead, or you might be taking a bus to the trailhead. It depends on where you're going. Um, Internal transport costs in Nepal are not that high, and then once you're on the trail, it depends somewhat by region. Uh, High mountainous regions tend to be more expensive than lowland ones, Mm -hmm. but. Um, Twenty, thirty dollars a day for room and board. Would oh, that, that is uh, plenty. 20, I, I would say you that. could probably get by in less than that. All right, and would you hire a Sherpa, or is that just sort of the storybook hiking? It's quite possible if you don't want to carry your pack, and there's many reasons not to want to carry a backpack, including one's knees as one gets older. Yeah. It's quite easy to hire a porter at a trailhead. They may be a Sherpa, or they may be of another ethnic group, depending on the region. Can you get a, a person that actually carries your gear and serves as a guide interpreter for you? That you can find people like that, yeah. And if you find a good one, it can really open up your visit because they can take you into people's houses, visiting friends along the way or family. They can take you off the beaten path so that you're not just staying in the major tourist lodges. It can make your visit a real special thing. And it can also help you uh, minimize your cultural faux pas so you are more comfortable with the culture, I think. Yeah, they can be a wonderful interface for you, explain things along the way. You know, a lot of people are awkward. This, I'm paying this person like 20 bucks a day and he's carrying all my stuff. He's all exhausted and sweating and he's and I'm just lollygagging around having a great time photographing the flowers, and he's also my guide and interpreter. But can't you feel good about employing a person this way? Oh, I think that carrying a tourist backpack is highly preferable for porters compared to carrying a, you know, three cases of Coca-Cola or two sacks of cement. <laughs> because I guess we've got to <laughs> remember, good job. these are the trucks on those trails. Yes, that's co- right. Connecting no. communities. And, and, you know, they look for the cultural interface, too. They're interested in learning about life in the West. They're interested in potentially making a friend who can help them move forward in life or whatever. So it's a mutually advantageous relationship. I would say... 
for me, hands down, I'd spend to have a guy carry my bag. But more importantly, I could carry my bag, but I'd let him carry it. But I'd want somebody who is my guide, who's my translator, who helps me connect with these communities. What would mm-hmm. I pay per day for something like that? Uh, again, it depends on the region, and I believe there's a minimum rate sent by the government in certain regions now, but I'll, I don't know, two, three hundred rupees a day, let's see, I, I, $10 a day would definitely cover it. Ten It'd bucks a less day. Than that. I found in some, I'm thinking Sri Lanka now, in the south of India, but it was, for instance, to remember the the affordability of a guide, it was cheaper for me to hire a car with a driver and let him drive than it was for me to hire a car and drive it myself. And it was probably much more enjoyable. Too. Oh, it was awesome. I had a friend. It was a, a friend. He was my man, and uh, I, I experienced and enjoyed so much more. Hey, we've got some calls uh, on the line, some travelers, and let's talk to Rich in Pittsburgh. Are you there, Rich? Yes, I'm here. Namaste. Namaste. Hey. What's on your mind, um, Yeah, I went to uh, Nepal for trekking in uh, 1990 and 2000, and uh, really had a great time, one of the best times of my life. And I could see the uh, changes in between the two uh, Two different trips. I went to two different regions and had kind of a different focus on um, on the different trips. But uh, I was kind of wondering now, with the uh, recent instability, which regions are safe and which ones uh, should maybe trekkers avoid mm-hmm. these days? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good question. Uh, I would definitely steer clear of Western Nepal, far Western Nepal, which was never a major trekking area for tourists anyway. Um, but from what I understand, the major areas like Annapurna and Everest are still open and still mm-hmm. still viable for travelers and tourists. And particularly high-altitude regions like Manang and Kumbu, the influence of the Maoists is a bit less up there. So all, all the kind of the, the classic tourist routes are still pretty safe. Uh, Annapurna and Everest are still happening as far as I Yeah, and also the places that you need to pay a little extra to get into, like Mustang, for example, I believe that's still going on. So, yeah, the major routes, I would I would stick with those and not do any minor unknown routes at this time. Okay, and the um, the cities like Kathmandu, how's the safety there? Well, a lot's been happening in Nepal recently, um, but in terms of safety, I still consider it a pretty reasonably safe place to go. I mean, they have their own internal insurrection going on, but the Maoists have made it clear up to this point that they're not targeting tourists. In fact, that they welcome right. and support tourists there, so you don't have to feel like you're going to be picked out or uh, kidnapped or anything like that. Hey, um, Carrie, excuse me, is there a U.S. State Department advisory for or against traveling in Nepal right now? It's been against traveling in Nepal from the point of view of, uh, I believe, the American Center was uh, had a minor bomb or two thrown at it. How do, you, how do you how do you respond to that? Because I mean, you make your own decision. You don't just if the State Department says it's they don't advise it. Do you automatically not go, or what do you do? Well, in part because I know Nepal very well, I plug into the people I know and the situation as I know it, and I make some judgments there. I would certainly check up on the State Department's latest warnings, take in their news, take in all the other news I could get off the internet, and factor all that into my decision yeah. as to what the current situation is at the moment you're planning the trip. All right. Rich, are you heading back to Nepal sometime? I don't have any plans uh, yet, but I'd love to. I can't wait to get back. You actually did a trek over there? Yes, I did, too. I did, uh, in 1990, I went to the Annapurna region, and then in uh, 2000, I went to the Langtang region. You know, we woke up in the mm. morning, and there were the mountains oh. just just right in front oh. of us like we could touch them. It, it was That's beautiful. That's awesome. Rich, thanks for your call. Oh, thanks for having me. All right. Leanne in Los Angeles. Yeah, hi. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for doing the program, and thank you so much, Carrie, for your insights. Mm-hmm. Um, I did the Everest trek um, in 91, and I, I was there for about two months, and um, it was just one of the, the highlights of my travels in Asia. 
Uh, at the time I was there, there there actually was a small coup that occurred, but it seemed like life on the ground was just went on as normal, and it didn't really affect us in any way. I'd love to go back with my husband now and, and do almost the same trek again, but I guess I'm wondering, like Rich, you know, how does a tourist evaluate these safety issues? Would a person be safer, safer going with a group, or could I do a tea house trek again the way I did the first time I went? Um, you just don't see a lot of Nepal news in American newspapers, so it's really, really that's, hard to get a sense. That's right. You have to Google it and do some uh, Internet searches, and then you can come up with some more. Um, my understanding is that Kumbu in particular is pretty safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then flying up to a higher altitude region from Kathmandu would be okay. And that either tea house trekking or group travel, I, I don't really know if I think it makes a difference in that sense. I have heard consistently that uh, Maoists um, take their tax off of tourists. You've probably heard this. They they hit you up on the trail for a, a trekking permit fee for their own government, which is like, oh, 600 rupees or something. You could call it a shakedown, but you get a receipt, <laughs> and you only have to pay once. So as long as you pay, you're fine, and it seems to be a, a amicable relationship on both sides. What's How many rupees in a dollar? About 70. 70, so it's about 10 bucks for the mm-hmm. safety. I'd pay mm-hmm. that without much question. I had the same fee charged to me going over Khyber Pass, just from autonomous people and, you know, as, as it's Karen. a long-standing tradition, no doubt. Uh, well, now we're talking about the safety issue here. What are the statistics? Have any tourists been hurt by by these problems? No, not that I know of. Neither injured nor killed. And as I said, no tourists, tourists are not a deliberate target in any way. My concerns would be um, a remote concern of maybe you'd get into a clash between people in some way, and you might be in the wrong place at the right time. That's yeah. rather remote, but that's something to think about. And then that probably the more practical concern is that you might run into transportation snafus or communication snafus if the buses are all shut down for the day or the right. week, for example, or the phone lines were cut as they were recently. It's a, it's a real world out there. It's a very real world. And that's part of travel. Hey, and Leanne was talking about tea house trekking. Explain that to us, well, as that, opposed to guided tours, I guess. Yeah, this is the option that independent travelers have uh, who go on their own rather than with groups. And basically, you can walk from village to village. You can get stop at little tea shops, get tea and biscuits. You get your food mm-hmm. there. You can sleep in them at night. Some of them are set up for foreign tourists in particular, so they have nice things like mattresses and pillows and um, enchiladas and pizza. Wow. And Leanne, you did this kind of trekking? Yes. Actually, I had reserved with the tour operator, but when I arrived in Kathmandu and uh, found out how, how really easy it was to, to go trekking and to get together with a group of people and just go on your own, um, you know, being young and wanting adventure and wanting to save money, I, I went that way, and it was really a terrific experience. And you felt comfortable way out there in the middle of nowhere, halfway up Mount Everest or whatever, not knowing where your next bed is going to be, just going to the <laughs> tea house and- <laughs> You're never alone. You're you're always meeting up with your your group. You're meeting other people who are trekking, and you're meeting uh, Nepali who are trekking and okay. who, so who you can are find interested a bed. in chatting with you. And people people make a make a space for you. For ten bucks, you'll always have a bed. That's true. Probably for two bucks, you'll always have a bed. <laughs> <laughs> now, Carrie writes that trekking is pure process, not destination. Uh, what do you think about that, Leanne? I mean, because you're you're not going someplace; you're being in the mountains. Is that true? Or, or that that is so true, and that's that's really the the experience. We took probably two weeks uh, walking into Everest Base Camp. Mm-hmm. We acclimatized, and we walked the whole way from the trailhead. Um, and when when we were finished, we flew out from Lukla, which is maybe a half hour flight. 
-hmm. and you're flying over these peaks that took you two weeks to (laughs) walk in. And as you fly, you're remembering all the experiences you had. You're remembering how really hard it was getting up the hill and how really hard it is going down the hill. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the, all, the, all the yaks that you've met along the way and all of those, those wooden bridges, suspension bridges that you walked over. And you, and you just you think, what, what I would have missed if I just flew over this in a half hour? That was a whole two weeks of my life, this life-changing experience. And, and it's gone like that in a half hour in a plane flight. And it, was, it really made me proud that I had been up those mighty peaks and everything, uh, but also just thinking... Uh, you know the investment in in my lifetime and in right. the experiences I'd had. And, um, and it, was, it was amazing to walk in and fly out. Physically, mm. you probably felt great after that. Yeah, yeah. I I wouldn't say that I was really that fit. In fact, um, you know, I was one of probably the slowest person in our group. But the interesting thing, um, and probably something that that people should think about, is altitude sickness is a very real thing, and often it's people who are the best athletes who succumb to it because they push themselves and they're not willing to admit when they're not feeling well. Whereas I was always just, it was really the tortoise and the hare because by the time we got to Kalapatar, which is uh, a peak that you can go up to look over and view Everest, um, almost everyone didn't feel well enough to make the trek that day. Mm -hmm. And it was only myself and another girl who went. And I was the only one who made it to the top of Calipatar. So there is so a really good trekking tip, Carrie. Just don't be a superstar. The race. <laughs> it's slow and steady. That's that, good. And that's about 17,000 feet high in altitude she's talking about. Oh, wow. So definitely yeah. you want to pace yourself when you're getting above 9,000 feet. Leanne, thank you so much for your call. Well, thank you so much for the, for the um, terrific show. All right. Boy, uh, Carrie, I love this idea that there's a psychological prerequisite to handling this trekking well, and it is process, not destination. And, you know, I think that applies to Asian travel in general. I agree. Hey, Carrie, I want to talk to you again later, but right now we're out of time. And just thank you so much for your insight into trekking in Nepal. Carrie Moran, the author of The Moon Handbook to Nepal. Namaste, Carrie. Namaste, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com, where you can look up information on this and other programs in this series. You can also participate in discussion boards on a variety of travel topics and submit your questions and comments. That's at ricksteves.com. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.